All right, we are in Matthew chapter 1, is where we have been for the last couple weeks, as we are looking at the mothers of Jesus. And this morning, uh, to spare you um, the reading of of 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, both for its length and for its um, contents, um, we will... uh, We'll refrain from reading all that. I will walk through the story here in just a minute, but we're gonna read from the genealogy account of Jesus. And here's what it says from God's word, picking up in verse one of Matthew chapter one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And here is Jesus' genealogy. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. You guys keep me up with this? I don't want to repeat this. And Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And we drop down to the end of the genealogy where it says this, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Well, we've been walking through this series called The Mothers of Jesus. In that genealogy, there are five women mentioned. And that is a rare thing. It's a rare thing because women were not usually included. They were not considered full citizens. They were second-class citizens in most cultures and societies of that day, and there's five women mentioned in the, in the genealogy of Jesus, though, and they each represent critical and important stories from redemptive history, but it's not simply just their role in redemptive history, it's also the type of women and the stories that surround them. And this morning, we come to the fourth of five. She is called Uriah's wife. Her name is not even mentioned. And in fact, in the account, what we're about to go over from 2 Samuel chapter 11, she only speaks three words. She doesn't even get her actual name mentioned. There's part of one that has to say to to the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew, say her name. At least say her name, Matthew. Her name is Bathsheba. She is not just Uriah's wife, right? Some of you have this experience in life where you're always known as somebody else's child, or perhaps like Matthew Paquette, you're known as Noah's dad. You're like, Matthew's like, I have a name, dadgummit. I'm an elder. I'm not just Noah's dad. You know, you see, what's, what's Matthew the writer doing here by mentioning not her name, but just who she's married to? Says she is Uriah's wife. Why is she not mentioned? Well, just because of that because she's Uriah's wife, and yet she has the baby by David. She is not David's wife, or at least not when the story begins. You see, Matthew, the writer of this gospel, is forcing his Israelite readers, he is rubbing their nose in it. He is saying, let me just real quickly mention 
who's part of the genealogy of Jesus. It's one of those stories that simply by referring her to her in this way brings up and conjures up in the mind of everybody who knew Old Testament history, any good Israelite would remember the story. There's only one story of Bathsheba and it is a story of scandal. But is it a story that speaks volumes where it brings to the forefront of the minds of the readers that the book, the, the very reason why the son of David, the son of Abraham, Jesus who is called the Christ, why he had to come. And so this morning we'll simply walk through the story well, under two headings. First, I want you to see from 2 Samuel chapter 11, a sobering scandal, a sobering scandal. Let me walk you through the story this morning. You can read of this account in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and, picking, uh, and continuing on into chapter 12. It begins this way. It says, it was springtime when kings went off to war, but David didn't go. David sends Joab and his army out and Jerusalem is now depopulated of all the fighting men of age. They go off fighting for Israel and for David, their king. And while maybe after David had an afternoon nap and he gets up and he strolls around the top of his castle, he looks out and he spots a woman bathing and he inquires about her. And he is told that she is Bathsheba. She is the daughter of Eliab and the wife of Uriah. Now that is one of those details that many, for many of us, as we were to just skip over and be like, oh yes, 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 this, is, this was her husband. And that, that, that is significant enough and that she has a husband and she has a father and that should keep most of us from doing what David does. But you also have to know who Eliab and Uriah are. They were part, as we will learn at the end of David's life, I believe in 2 Samuel chapter 23, a long list of men known as David's mighty men. The mighty men of David were those who gathered around David before David was king, while king, the king of Israel was Saul, David's father-in-law, and Saul had a very, let's say, a complicated relationship with David, in which it involved throw, mostly throwing spears at him and chasing him all around the desert, trying to kill him. And it was during that time, while Saul was hunting David, that certain men, faithful men of integrity and warriors for David, gathered around him. And they did so at potentially the loss of all of their goods and possessions, they, the, the loss of their good name, the potential that if they were caught or defeated in battle, that they would be put to death. It was an incredible risk to ally yourself to David. And yet the mighty men of David did so. And that is who Uriah is. He is mentioned in that, that list. That is who Eliab is, Uriah's father. They are men who have sworn allegiance. They are David's closest confidants and his best friends. And so the woman that David is now lusting after from the top of his castle is the daughter of one of his royal, most loyal men and the husband of one of his most loyal men. But does this stop David? No. David summons Bathsheba and the Bible puts it in very stark terms. It happens now quickly. The story moves rapidly in staccato phrases. It says, and the most damning of which is this, he took her. This is no love affair. This is not some tale of romance. He simply took her. He used his power and his authority He is greedy and this is a raw abuse of power to defile and to destroy the purity of another but because of his own desires. And then comes the only three words we hear from Bathsheba. And what are they? These are the three words that have struck terror or joy in the hearts of people everywhere. I am pregnant. And now David knows he's in trouble. 
He knows he's in trouble. So David calls Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, back from the battlefield, and he seeks to cover what, up what has happened. He, by having Uriah go home and reunite with his wife, he is hoping that then he can cover it up and everybody would assume Uriah came back from the battlefield. He was intimate with his wife and the child that she has will be his, considered to be his, and everything will be smoothed over. But what he doesn't count on is Uriah's continued integrity and faithfulness both to David and to his men and to Yahweh. Uriah comes home and he, will, he comes back to Jerusalem, but he will not go home because he says the ark of God's covenant is out there. And if the ark of God's covenant is not in its house, I will not go home either. If my men are sleeping in tents, I will not go home and enjoy my house. And so David tries another tact. He gets him drunk, but that doesn't work either. Even in drunkenness, Uriah is a man of integrity. And so David must take a much more cold and sinister approach. He writes down instructions to have Uriah put up at the front lines of the battle, up near the walls of the city that they are attacking, and then to have all the men suddenly remove themselves from him so that Uriah is out and exposed such that he'll be shot and killed by the arrows. And these instructions David then sends by whose hand? By Uriah's hand. David is a cold-blooded killer. And these instructions are carried out by David's general, Joab, and Uriah is struck down dead. And so here's what we see in this account. In one account, David murders, he commits sexual infidelity, he lies, he steals, he covets. That's five of the Ten Commandments by my counting. That's a pretty impressive day on the sin category. And so what we have here, other than the betrayal of Judas, is perhaps the most heinous, notorious act of betrayal in all of the Bible. And so what does this sordid account tell us? Who does it speak of? It tells us of David. David. The whole reason is not to, to call Bathsheba, Bathsheba Uriah's wife is not to like push her aside and to discredit her or, or kind of believe that she is not, she should be nameless. She is of no value and no account. No, it is to highlight in the text and in the genealogy whose responsibility this is. And the responsibility falls squarely upon David's shoulder. Now, David, if you read to the end of the genealogy in Matthew chapter one, you will find that David is a rather key figure in the whole of the genealogy. In verses 17, here's what it says of Matthew chapter one. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, another 14 generations, and then from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. In other words, there were two hinges in the genealogy. Two, two hinges, David and Babylon, and they represent the high point and the low point in Israelite history. Babylon represents the destruction of Jerusalem, the enslavement of God's people, and the low point of Israelite history up to this point. David, on the other hand, what does he represent? The foundations of Jerusalem the high point of God's people, the high point of Israelite history. He is considered to be in Israelite history the king of kings. He is the best of the best that Israel will ever produce. David occupies more space in the Bible than any other human being other than Jesus. The New Testament refers to him as, it, it, it refers to him more than any other Old Testament figure, some 58 times. This is the man who wrote much of the Psalms, who wrote words like, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Or in Psalm 40, where he says, I delight to do the law of God. This is the man who slayed the giants and danced with delight and worship to God. But the truth is that the best that this world produces, 
The best that the people of God can produce, the writer of the Psalms is the assaulter of a woman who he is bound to protect. The truth is that the leader of men and the slayer of giants and the friend to Jonathan is the one who steals one of his most loyal friends' wife. The truth is that this is a man who is, has compassionate to disable, compassion for disabled Mephibosheth and invites him to his table is the same man who now puts Uriah in his grave. This is the king that Yahweh chose to reign over his people and he is considered to be the man after God's own heart. And so what are we to learn from this? This is a profound warning for all of God's people. If David can fall, Anyone could fall. If David, with all of his good, can become this corrupt, then none of us are good. This means that the seeds of the most atrocious and vile and despicable deeds are latent with potentiality within your own heart. The same evil that cut through the heart of David runs right through your heart as well. If even David was capable of this, if he has the capacity for such evil and sin, then the seeds of such evil and sin reside in you as well. The minute you say, oh David, oh my, I would never do that, then you betray that you do not know yourself very well, that you do not know the monster within. And so we should not, here's what I'm saying, you should not be shocked by sin. You should not be shocked by what you read about David here but it should be sobering. It should be sobering. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says this, therefore let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall, which means this, if you think you are incapable of this, then you're setting yourself up to fall. And so you shouldn't be shocked by David's sin, you should not be shocked by your sin, and you shouldn't be shocked by mine either. Here's another illustration of this. You know, well, one of the most famous hymns and one of the most favored lines that Christians have sung for a number of centuries has been Robert Robinson's hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It has these lines, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And God's people rise up and say, yes, I, I, I know that experience. I know that feeling of being concerned that I, I see how quickly my heart pr is prone to wander. But you know, there's an interesting story about Mr. Robinson who wrote that, those lines. He was converted under George Whitfield's preaching in the 17th century, in 1752, and he became a Baptist pastor in Cambridge, England. But toward the end of his life, he, it was written that he fell into gra grave and frivolous old habits, even struggling with doubt in his own faith. And one day, he was on a stagecoach, traveling by stagecoach, and there was a woman on the stagecoach with him who I guess, you know, you're in very close proximity and so you have to come up with things to say. And she went on and on listening all of her favorite hymns and she kept carrying on over and over again about how much she loved this hymn, Come Thou Fount, and how much it meant to her and what an immense blessing it was. And Robert Robinson eventually just pulling his hair out goes, said this, Madame, I am the poor unhappy man who composed that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy that same feeling again today. In other words, the very man who wrote the words that you delight to sing, that remind you and warn you of your ability to walk away from the Lord, did indeed experience his own heart even after he had written the hymn, wandering, wandering. And so it is the grace of God that sobers us up over our sin. 
Not just our sin, but our sinfulness, our capacity for sin. And perhaps the only safe place is to be where Robert Robertson spoke in another part of that hymn. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. That that would be your prayer. To pray that other side, to know I am constantly able and have a capacity to sin just like him and just like David. And we should be sobered when we see the scandal of David's sin because not just because we're capable, but also because the consequences of our sin is so dire. And this is important, particularly for those of us who consider ourselves to be these New Testament believers who believe that, oh my, nothing, this would never happen to us. And oh my, we are not in the land, we're in the land of just blessing all the time. There's never any discipline for us, but that's not the case, is it? Because Hebrews says that God disciplines those he loves and he disciplines David and that the consequences of David's discipline are dire and difficult. You know, this is the turning point of David's life. From 2 Samuel chapter 13 through chapter 20 is count after count of the consequences of David's sin because of the, of, it all spawns from this. Here's what we see the list of what happens over the course of David's life. He loses the child that is born to Bathsheba. There is rape amongst his own children. Absalom will say to his father, what you did in secret, I will do on the rooftops. And when Absalom seeks to take the kingdom from his father, the greatest loss to David's case and to David's help was a man named Ahithophel, who was his most trusted and wise counselor. You know who Ahithophel is? He is Bathsheba's grandfather. It's webbed, woven throughout David's life. God would bring about direct disciplines or sometimes simply natural consequences and they will take their toll upon David's life. But it is the declaration of God that should sober us up of us, anybody about our sinfulness. Because how the chapter ends in 2 Samuel chapter 11, it is stark. And it's what we see at the end of this whole account is that David does his dirty deeds and everything is over but the weeping. Uriah's dead. Bathsheba receives the official letter of her husband's death and the army's condolences and the usual period of mourning comes and goes and David takes her to be his wife. But what is the bottom line? What does God think about all this? There is no mention of God until the very last line of chapter 11 in which it says this in verse 27. The thing that David had done was evil in Yahweh's eyes. And that should sober God's people. That it is not just little white lies or little tiny sins that you commit, but what we do is evil in the eyes of God. Here's how commentator Ralph Davis put it in commentating on this last verse. He said this, The writer has related this whole sordid tale of lust and sex and deceit and murder without pausing to make marginal moral notations along the way. He details every step of the story as if God was nowhere involved. The silence about God, however, only serves to accentuate and punctuate God's lone statement to close this chapter. It is as if David can vent his glands and weave his cover-up without any interference until he runs smack dab into the judgment and the discipline of God. David may have Bathsheba's flesh in Uriah's eyes, but he will have to face Yahweh's eyes. And so people of God, be sober-minded about David's sin, for the seeds of it rest in you as well. But I have good news, and aren't we glad? There is grace for the worst of failures. That's why it's in the genealogy. Jesus came for failures, 
and he only came for failures. Non-failures need not apply. The lesson from 2 Samuel 11 is that we should not be shocked by our sin, but the lesson of 2 Samuel 12 is that we should be shocked by the grace of God. We should be sobered by sin, but shocked by grace. But as failures, we, we should be left with nothing but sobriety that leads us to chapter 12. And now the expectation of leading into chapter 12 after God declares, David, this is evil, what do you expect? Retribution and judgment and punishment. And that is there in chapter 12. But I read through 2 Samuel, leaves one with a sense, if you read through the whole thing, that one has moved from the land of stark evil and sinfulness into the land of grace. And so we see the second part of our story is this, of Uriah's wife is a shocking grace. It begins with the very first words of 2 Samuel 12, but it goes this way. Well, chapter, 12, uh, chapter 11 ends, the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. But the very next words are this, but the Lord sent Nathan to David. And here begins the elements of God's shocking grace for David. And I want you to see it first in this first verse, in these first words. For you see here the pursuit of God's grace. Yahweh sent Nathan to David. Without those words, and if the story ends here, and David's able to go along his merry way, and God just simply brings natural consequences without ever telling David why, then this is a story that is not just sober, but bleak and hopeless and despairing. But God sends Nathan. God, who appears to be not acting in chapter 11, now was acting in chapter 12. And now we have, we have read to the end of the story for many of us. We know how this ends. I've communicated about how David's life turns. But we must not run ahead too soon. We need to dally here for just a second and open and understand the vigilance of God's grace that when God's people sin, he is a God who runs after them. Over and over and over again. The God, this Yahweh, will not simply allow us to sit in the muck and the despair of our sinfulness. You may succeed in unfaithfulness, either to your own spouse or to your God, but he will remain faithful to you. And when you get running, running off from him, he will come after you. What an immense and genuine comfort it is for Christians to know this. To know, now, understand this. God's pursuit of you is not always enjoyable. There's been times when my kids, they, have, they can see that I am so angry that they, they hightail it out of, out of my way. And me coming after them is not usually to bring joyous things to, into their life, but it is to restore them. And God's pursuing grace may not be super comfortable when he catches us at first, but it is restoring grace. You see this is who God is? Adam and Eve, this is what he's been doing from the very first sin. Adam and Eve reject God, they eat of the fruit, and what does God do? He goes running after them. When David acts in such an evil way, God comes after them. The Son of Man, this is why he came, to seek and save the lost. God will not let his children rest in their mess forever. There was a book a couple years ago I heard about, about a guy named Josh and he gives his testimony in the book. It's just an account of his, how he came to know the Lord. But instead of giving the account from his own perspective, he gives the account from God's perspective, imagining how God thought as God pursued him and tried to woo him into the kingdom. And here's what he said. 
These are the, what he believed God's words are as, he, as, he, as God watches Josh. This is what Josh imagined that God was thinking. You know, pride keeps people from doing all sorts of things. Like right now, Josh is, is too proud even to talk to me. I'm being ignored, thought God. That's okay. I'm not stopping. I never do. So I whispered to Josh again. But Josh just isn't budging. Well, it's okay. I saw this coming. Like most, he wants to be in charge, which means I have to. Well, I'm not going to give him a heart attack. But Josh probably can't tell the difference. And since I have, to, I have my hands, I, I'm going to take my hands and I'm going to squeeze his chest and squeeze his ego and his future and his past, and it's going to hurt him. But look, I said, I said my play doesn't always feel gentle. Brawling sometimes is the signs of love. People underestimate my persistence and how much I'm willing to go after them. And that is your God. He will go after you. He will run and he will wrestle you. He will hunt you down to bring you back to him. But then we see the shocking grace of God, not just in that, but also in the shrewdness, the shrewdness of God's grace. Let me bring you up to speed as to what happens in chapter 12. So David, the representative of God, the king of Israel, sends in this terrible and office awful way. God sends Nathan. Nathan is a prophet. He's a preacher. Nathan knows that David is hard-hearted. By the time Nathan shows up, it's been a year since David has taken Bathsheba. And so Nathan shows up and he immediately launches into a story to David. He goes, David, I have to tell you a story. And he shares the story about a family, a poor, poor family that had one little lamb. It wasn't even a lamb that they were raising for its wool or raising for food. It was the family pet. They adored this lamb, but they lived next door to a rich man who had thousands and thousands of sheep. He was wealthy beyond imagination, and this rich man had a, had a guest come to visit him one day, and he wanted to prepare a meal for this guest, but he, didn't wanna, he wouldn't want to eliminate one of the sheep from his flock. That would ruin the compounding interest of sheep reproduction. And so he goes out and he steals this family's little pet, pet sheep, and he slaughters it and gives it to his guests. And David hears the story, and he goes, that man should die. And then Dave, Nathan produces the greatest sermon landing ever. Talk about a mic drop. He looks at David and he says these words, you are the man. Do you see the method and the strategy of God's grace? Don't you know as a parent, isn't it so often the way in which we, we have no sophistication. In the years and years into parenting, we still take everything head on, don't we? And yet the wise parent learns how to take the side door to confronting their kids. And so does the wise spouse and the wise counselor. There's a counselor, a guy named Jim Cofield, who is known by some of you. Some of you have seen him as a counselor. He's come and spoken here for some of our conferences. But Jim Cofield, what is known by those who were trained under him at Reformed Theological Seminary, is they would go to see him for counseling. And they said that they would walk out of his office and they would go, I feel wounded I didn't know it when he was talking to me. And what they realized is he had gone in the side door. And he was so gentle and so kind and so gracious. But they'd walk away and realize, he got me. He stuck me in the place in which I most needed to be stuck. And so it is with David and Nathan. David is hard-hearted. And so Nathan does not attack him direct on. He comes in through the side door. He allows David to actually condemn himself. 
And then he springs the trap. You see, God's grace, he is not always there. He doesn't just go about using his grace and his confrontation in order to bludgeon you. Often, often over time, he's allowing the light bulb to come in on your, to come on in your own mind and to go, oh no. Third aspect of God's grace, it's the confrontation. All right, so David is delivered, has the verdict delivered to him. Nathan announces Yahweh's uh, word over David in verses 9 through 12. And in verse 14, Nathan then pronounces God's judgment and discipline upon David. David's house, he says, will never be at peace and at rest again. And the child who is a result of David taking Bathsheba, this child will die. And in the midst of this discipline in verse 13, here's how David responds. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That is his only response. David is led to repentance into a place of brokenness. Now, some people look at this and they go, I need more weeping and gnashing of teeth from David. But you know what? Actually, true repentance is not one that has to flail around on the ground and and beat ourselves in the back and tear our clothes. But often, the most true repentance is the one who simply says it flat out and plain and simply as it is, I have sinned. I did it. And when God confronts us, I want you to see that he confronts us, though, with the beauty of his grace, that that's actually what woos us. Nathan pronounces the details of discipline, but before he does that, what does he say in verses 7 through 8 of chapter 12? Let me read it to you. Nathan said to David, so David says, David says, that man should die. And Nathan goes, you are the man. And then he says this, David, you are the, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And what does he list off? I anointed you the king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and you and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added much more for you. What is God doing through the mouth of Nathan? He is showing the affront of sin as it appears in the context of God's goodness and grace. He's saying that the treachery may only appear as hideous as it truly is, that David's infidelity to God and to all those around him appears in all of its grossness when you see it in the context of God's incredible blessings and fidelity to David. This is my own story and my own testimony. I was raised a good kid, and I was a good kid. I did my devotions every day. I don't know why I was journaling every day at 9 and 10 years old. But by 13, 14, 15 years of age, I was struggling with something. The fact that I was a sinner and I couldn't get around it. And yet I was finding that I I could not defeat my sin. And what I had in my, my, how I felt about my sin is I felt guilty, but I did not experience the grace of God until the summer when I was 15 years old and I was in in Peru on a missions trip and looking around and seeing what the Christians there, which was what they had, which was nearly nothing. And then hearing alongside of that, the grace of God in the story of Hosea. And what was put in front of me was my sin was not now grievous to me simply because I was guilty. My sin became grievous to me because I saw it in the face of God's goodness to me. And that is what broke me. That seeing how good he had been and to go, I have sinned against this God? No longer was I simply just, try- I was just mad because I felt guilty and I didn't want his punishment. But now I was broken and brought to a place of repentance because I saw how amazing he had been. And I go, how could I sin against him? He has been so faithful. So do you see 
The confrontation of grace is a confrontation that uses grace to shine the light upon your sinfulness by shining a bright light first upon the goodness and the graciousness of God for you. Fourth, the promise of grace. The law tells us that David deserved death, right? There's two things to get death, in particular in the Old Testament law. Murder and adultery, David commits both of them. In verse 13, David said this, I have sinned against the Lord. But here is what David, Nathan did said to David, and this is the promise. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. The Lord has put away your sin. Are you stunned by that? Perhaps we would have to go back to the first point and make sure that we're sobered by the consequences of our sin to then be stunned by this level of forgiveness. We have become a people who have often lost the marvel of such forgiveness of God. We have, by and large, a vending machine view of God's forgiveness rather than a miracle view. That God's forgiveness, that he promises to forgive you, that he has extended forgiveness to you right there in the face of your sin. And we simply want to top out a token and say, ah, yes, my moment of penance and I get an assurance of pardon. In our public worship, we must mumble through our prayers of confession, don't you, most Sundays? We admit that we have left undone those things that we ought to have done, and we have done those things that we ought not to have done, even calling ourselves miserable offenders, but do we actually believe it? But it's all in the script for the church. It's in the church bulletin, and it's on the screens. But ha have we lost our sense of amazement that God, in the face of our infidelity and our unfaithfulness, looks at us and says, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. Has your soul lost the goosebumps to God's assurance of pardon upon you? Last thing, and we'll be done. Lastly, I want you to see the cost of grace. And this is verse 14. So David, you're not gonna die. The Lord is not gonna hold your sins against you. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born unto you. That sounds familiar. The child who is born unto you shall die. Yahweh forgives the guilt of sin, but inflicts the consequences of sin on this side of eternity. He cleanses sin's defilement, but that doesn't mean he may not carry, continue on with his discipline for sin. Nathan is assured David that he, that David would not die, but a death would occur. David's firstborn child by Bathsheba would die. It's as if the child dies in David's place. It's as if the child is David's substitute. Now this brings up some distressing questions for us when we think about it outside of redemptive history and we go, wait a second, the child died. What did that child do? And it still brings up the issues of the incredible loss and the pain that Bathsheba would have felt in this. But putting that aside for just a second, there is a larger question that the Bible is trying to answer in bringing Jesus. Because the gospel is this. It's answering the challenge of sin. And from the, very begin, from the very beginning, the reason why there is any death from somebody in their 90s to a child who is two days old, the reason why there is death in this world is because of that as a consequence to sin. That because sin entered the world, so also did death. And so therefore, sin has to be dealt with in order for our death to be dealt with. And that is the story of Christmas. That the Son of God, the reason the Son of God had to come, 
This other son of David had to come was to be our substitute, to deal with our sin and to deal with the consequences of our sin. Yes, we are distressed by a child dying, but doesn't that actually reveal the full weight of this? Your sin deserves death and not just yours, but the death of everybody around you. It is a disease that runs through our bones and our blood, the consequences of sin. And yet God says, I am so committed. I am so faithful that I will come in and I will be the new son of David. And I will take upon myself the consequences of his sin so that one day all firstborn sons may be raised to life. Christ came to take away your sin, to be your substitute, to be slaughtered on your behalf, so that you don't have to pay for your sin. So the judgment for you on the other side of eternity is not there. There is nothing left for you but the blessing of God and the grace of God and the judgment of all things. And so when you read in the genealogy, that line, don't run over it too quickly. David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Let those words confront your own adultery and sober you over your own unfaithfulness. But may they also remind you why the son of David had to come. Why the son of David and the son of Abraham, his name is Jesus the Christ, why he had to come in order to bear and to be the substitute for your sins. Puritan Richard Sibbs said it this way, there is more mercy in Christ than grace in us. And that is a good Christmas message. Let's pray. Lord, uh, discipline, the discipline of God and even the severity of it stuns us. And there are mysteries here as to how, I don't know how you're writing the world and your justice. But Lord, I think some often, sometimes our questions, the reason why we're so upset about these passages is because we, we, don't, we don't have a strong enough sense of our sin and what it deserves. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us some significant sobriety this morning. Lord, I pray that you would remind us and make us bring to mind to us the particular sins about which we should be sobered. Those things in our life where we see the the seeds of sin and desire towards that which is evil growing up within us, and that we would cry out to you to come and kill it. And Lord, where sin has already taken hold, and it has been acted upon, and we have been proved to be unfaithful. Lord, I pray that you would come cover us with your mercy, the mercy of your own son who shed his blood for us. And would you remind us of that tomorrow and tonight, that into this dark and broken world, and yes, into my dark and broken life, full of unfaithfulness, in came the light of the one who would save me from my sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.